Take out your Bibles if you would. If you're using uh, the Immerse Reader's Bible, the one we're using in our, in our growth groups during the week, uh, go ahead and, and, and turn there, if you will, to page number uh, 404, and we'll be on pages 404 and 405. Um, that's John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. If you have uh, any other Bible with you, any of them will work, as long as it's got a New Testament in it. You know, very seldom do I come to church, in a Baptist church, where people have just an Old Testament. They always have the New Testament if they're going to have one or the other. And uh, that's probably a good thing, but I'm glad that you have your whole Bible today if you have it. And so John chapter 4 is where we're at today. We're talking about um, immersing our lives uh, in God's Word. That's what we've, that's what we've been dealing with in, in these last seven weeks as we're reading through the Bible together, reading through the New Testament portion of the Bible. And in our, in our small groups, and some of you are not even not able to be in a, in a small growth group uh, because they're all online right now, um, but you're, you're with us uh, in, this morning watching, and, and so you're reading along, and, and so I'm glad that you're doing that. I want you to continue to do that. We're down to one more week. So we're getting close to the end of the New Testament. And so this, this coming week, as you read, will be your eighth week, and we will be finishing up uh, the New Testament. We're not finishing up everything, but we're finishing up the New Testament. And so as we begin to look at this, there's this, there's this day that Jesus and his disciples are, are wanting to go from, from one end of, of Palestine to the other end of Palestine. They're, they're moving uh, around. Jesus isn't staying very long in any one place, and they decide they're going to take the shortcut. Um, and so they, they, they end up in a place um, that, um, that, that they have an encounter, that Jesus has an encounter that just seems kind of happenstance. And so that's what we're talking about today. We're one talking about how to be a changer, a world changer. So this is a crash course on changing the world. So if you ever got up in the morning and said, I want to change the world today. This is the right place for you to be right now because we're going to figure out how to do it according to Jesus, how to be a world changer. So looking at John chapter 4, and I know there's a lot of verses in John chapter 4, and so they're not all in your sermon notes, uh, but they'll all be up on the screen, the ones that we're going to look at, because there just isn't enough room on those little two sides of the sheet to get everything on there that I wanted to share with you in terms of you being able to read that. So that's why I want you to have your Bibles open, but you can watch the screen also if you don't have a Bible with you right now. And, and so the story begins, and the disciples um, are, are in, um, you know, it, it begins in Judea, which is uh, in the south of Palestine, and they're wanting to go up into the region of Galilee, which is in the north of Palestine, and in between is Samaria. And, and the Jews really did not want to go through Samaria. They, they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. And, and, and they didn't like each other very much. Um, the Jews especially didn't like the Samaritans. And you say, well, I've heard that term before, Samaritans, as in the good Samaritan. But the Jews didn't think of any Samaritans as being good, necessarily. So when Jesus uses that illustration, um, you know, and he says, which of these was good, which one did the right thing, it, it probably just irked those, those, those Jewish leaders to say, well, it was that Samaritan guy. Because they really didn't want anything to do with him. They looked at Samaritans as being kind of sub-Jewish. They, they didn't add up. They, they, they shared some things in common, but then they shared things were very different. 
as well. And, and so we begin to look at this. They were, they were a mixed race, if you will. There was a day when, when, when most of the Jews had been taken away into captivity. They had been taken away, they'd been, they'd been decimated by the Assyrians, and then later on, the rest of them that were in, in Judea, or in Judah rather, were taken away into captivity in Babylon. And the Babylonians and the Assyrians both didn't just leave that, that land unoccupied, they did the same thing to other people. They had decimated and taken them out of their countries and they brought them to live in that area. And so as time went along, the, the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans who lived in that area of Samaria, uh, they, they intermarried. And then that, that race of people, the Samaritans in by Jesus' day, were, were anathema. They didn't want anything to do uh, with these people. Um, be, partly it's because they practiced a religion that was similar to Judaism, but it wasn't quite there. It just wasn't quite there. They only used the first five books of the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament didn't exist then, but the first five books of the Bible, the Jewish Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all they wanted to deal with. And that wasn't a bad thing. I mean, it makes up, it's only five books out of 39 books of the Old Testament, but it takes up about a quarter of the space. And so that's what they studied. Now, it's not a bad thing to study Genesis through Deuteronomy. I love those books. And in fact, let me give you just a really quick uh, commercial. Um, late summer, early fall, we're going to begin our second edition of, of Immerse in our, in our growth groups. We'll be doing Beginnings. That's the name of the book. This one is Messiah. It went through the New Testament. Beginnings is going to go through what would you expect? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law. The De the, that was the Torah. And so that was, in, that was important. And, and we're going to look at that. And so um, be, just be watching for that. And we'll, we'll hope that you get you into a group. And for those of you who didn't make it into one this time, I hope that you'll be able to get into one. What we're really, really praying for is that we can open up and have some of these meeting in homes um, by that time, by, by late summer, early fall. And if not, we, we know that we can make it work online, and uh, we may do a hybrid. So be watching for that. But for the Jews, that wasn't quite good enough. There were some things that were missing, and so they didn't want anything to do with them. And so when, when a Jew wanted to go north or south, they would make their trip three days longer intentionally because they would walk a day and a half east, and they would get on the east side of the Jordan River, and then they would go north or south, and then they would cross back over the Jordan River another day and a half back over to either Galilee or into Judea and around Jerusalem in those places, and, and they did that because they did not want anything to do with the, the Samaritans. They just, they didn't want them to be um, in, their, in their lives, and, and they just wanted to avoid them, and so um, because of that, um, they, were, they, were, they were saying, okay, let's just go around, and Jesus said, no, we're going to go right through the middle, and so they get to the, they get to the middle of the middle, if you will, they're right in the midst of Samaria, and they get there about noon. And, and they're hungry. And so they, they find a place to stop, and, and, they're, and they're, they're there. And, and so 
this is what we read in starting in verse 5, verses 5 through 8. It says, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now, there, there's a couple of interesting things there real quickly. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, but they didn't mind going into the village and to run through Jack in the Box or McDonald's and get food to eat. And so they're gone and they don't know about this conversation that's about to take place. And so this morning, I just want to share with you five, and I know that's a lot, but I'm going to have five truths to remember about being a world changer. If you want to change your world, if you want to... You can. You asked for it. <laughs> if you're online, you can stop reading my lips again. That's what you're fine. So again, the first thing I want you to see is that that all of those opportunities that that might present themselves for you to be a world changer are not be things you planned and not be things that you were looking for. Um, because Jesus and his disciples that day only planned to spend just maybe a couple of hours there around Sychar. They really just need to rest and get something to eat, and then let's get out of here. And so they weren't going to spend any amount of time. It was just a two-hour layover, and, and, and actually Jesus was not even in this village at that point and never was planning on going into the village, it doesn't seem like. And, and the Bible says that he was tired from the journey, and, and, and that's when the opportunity presented himself. So don't be surprised that, that when those opportunities where God says, now you can change something, now you can make a difference in the world, are going to be times when you're saying, oh, man, I am really tired. Could we do this next week? Could I just call and change that appointment with you, Jesus? No, they come 
at those sometimes inopportune times, and yet those opportunities are there. And so Jesus, tired and exhausted to the point where he doesn't even walk into the village, he stays there, and lets the disciples do that, uh, then, you know, he's, but he doesn't waste that opportunity when it happens. So there's a, there's a reality. With all of these truths, there's a reality that we have to understand. And I want you to see what these realities are. Reality number one this morning is this, that, that we always have to be on the lookout for God-ordained uh, moments. Those times when God says, this is where you'll be able to function. This is where we can do something really significant in your life or in somebody else's life. And so you have to watch out for those God-ordained moments because what appears to be a chance encounter could easily be the most important event in someone else's life. You're seeing it as a bother. You're seeing it perhaps as, as an inconvenience. It is something that's distracting from where you really wanted to go or what you really wanted to do. Are you just so dead tired? And yet God says, but if you pay attention and you get involved in these opportunities I bring, what you do could make such a significant change in somebody else's life. And you're thinking, oh, I wasn't even looking for that today. God says, but I was. So be, pay attention for those times. So Jesus does what? He asks the woman for a drink. In verse 9, it says, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, if we're, we're reading the New Living Translation, because that's what this Bible is translated into. If you're reading almost any other translation of the Bible, there's another phrase that's there. It's in quotation marks. And the quotation mark in, in the New International Version says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she was just expressing the obvious. I like how Eugene Peterson, um, in his message Bible, in the, in the paraphrase of it, his, his quotation marks uh, say this, Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to a Samaritan. Wouldn't be caught dead doing that. It's not just that Jews didn't like the Samaritans and wouldn't associate with them. Specifically, they would not eat or drink after them. They wouldn't do that. And they wouldn't share a table with them. So Jesus is breaking all kinds of cultural norms here, isn't he? That sound familiar at all? That sounded like anything's gone on in our world? You know, have you watched the news in the last year? Have you watched the news this weekend? Have you noticed that, that yesterday there were a lot of protests Protests in Atlanta, protests in New York City, protests in other major cities where there are large Asian communities. Not protests so much as just marches to say, hey, we're here, we're Americans, and we didn't cause COVID. We didn't bring it from China in a suitcase to give you. And yet they're being killed. Are there, there places of business are being burned down? 
Now, I think there's a place for protest, and I don't have any problems with that so much. But I believe that we can, as a nation, survive okay without denigrating one race of people or even one particular religion or another to the point where we, we say, you're not welcome here, and we want to kill you and nothing else. That's not who we ought to be. Not only is who we have to be as a nation, is certainly not who we have to be as believers in Jesus Christ. But because of the past conflicts that the Jews and the Samaritans had had, it is quite likely that some of Jesus' disciples that were with him that day felt exactly like that. I would rather kill these people than talk to them. I don't want anything to do with them. I wouldn't even be here if Jesus hadn't taken us this way. Wouldn't have bothered to step foot in their territory. And they would have used their religion and their patriotism as to justify their hatred. But what did Jesus do? What did he do at that point? He asked the woman a cultural enemy of himself for a drink. Just for a drink. Doesn't sound like a big deal. But it went against his culture. It went against everything, all the norms that they had, because now he is saying, you're a Samaritan woman, and I will accept a drink from you. And so would you give me a drink? Secondly, not only are all those opportunities to change the world going to come unplanned and unexpectedly, but number two, God expects his people to treat all people like people. He expects us to treat all people like people. You know, it's, it's, it's not only surprising that Jesus would ask a Samaritan for a drink, but that he would engage in conversation with, of all things, a woman. Not even just a Samaritan woman, but a woman. Because that wasn't the culture of the day. Even a Jewish man would not ask a Jewish woman for a drink. That would have been anathema as well. And, and in fact, in Palestine, women were looked down on with contempt in Jesus' day. And so Jesus made a habit of breaking down barriers every time he came up to them. It just, that's just what he did, especially when it came to this, 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 this wrong-sided argument that you're a woman and I can't talk to you and, and you should leave me alone. I'm a man. Think about how Jesus broke down barriers with, with not only just this woman at the well, but also Mary Magdalene. And if you're reading through uh, your New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and we're now in, in the Gospel of John, uh, and, and so if you're reading John, you're, you're starting to see some of these things, and there's Mary Magdalene. There's the woman caught in adultery. Uh, there is the woman who anointed Jesus uh, at the home of Simon, and there is the woman who touched his hem, the hem of his garment, uh, because she needed to be healed uh, from that bleeding that just had been going on for years and years. Um, and, and, and so we see that Jesus did not stop engaging with women in terms of touching their lives. And so let me share with you world change, change of reality number two. And that is that no one is less than a human. 
No one is less than human. Not in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of his people should that be. No one is less than human. And no one is beyond redemption. Not in the eyes of God and shouldn't be in the eyes of his people. One of the things that, that, we, that we've done in our refocus is we've kind of re, re, massaged our, our core values. And, and one of the things that I brought up is a core value, and, and, and we didn't put it on our official list, but, but I think it should be, and I'm going to keep working toward getting it there, is that people should be our number one core value. Not just on the list of seven or eight. It ought to be number one. People. God did not send Jesus Christ in the world in order to redeem some nice documents. He didn't even send Jesus into the world primarily to build a church. He didn't send Jesus in the world just to heal people who are sick. He sent Jesus into the world because he loved us. He loved people. And if we forget that, all the other stuff matters not the least. If we can't love people who are different than we are, or who, who make us upset or angry, then we're not doing what God's called us to do, and we're not changing the world for the good. We can't at that point. And so Jesus is, is pointing out that. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, I know churches that intentionally market to, to their own demographic, if you will. And there are places in there are places in, in small towns and cities where where it's pretty much just one demographic. But more and more, um, even small towns don't have just one demographic of people any longer. They're not all just you know white middle class upper class whatever you know middle upper class people. There are all kinds of people that we deal with, and you get into the larger cities, and it just it just. It just balloons as to how many demographics there are. In fact, I, I read about one church this past week that did a mailing to their city. They just, you know, you get those mailings, don't you, sometimes? And they, you get a postcard or something in the mail inviting you to their church. And they sent out one to their city, only they were very strategic in what they did. They said, we wanted only to go to this street and to that street and that side of that street over there. Don't send it to everybody because we don't want everybody to come. We want only our demographic to come. Jesus would have looked at them and said, what in the world are you doing? Woman, I'm dying of thirst here, but you're a Samaritan and you're a woman. Stay away from me. He wouldn't do that, would he? And that's not what he did. Look again, Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew nor Gen or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you want to make a change, if you want to be a change maker in our world today, then you need to let go of your biases. You've got to let go of, of our prejudices that, that we have. You have to let go uh, of all those things and learn to see every person as God sees them. 
Every person on this planet matters to him, and they should matter to you as well. So let's go on with our story. Starting at verse 8 and reading through verse uh, verse 10, rather, and reading through verse 18, and you'll just have to watch the screen or follow along in whatever Bible you're reading. But this is what, what happened. Jesus replied, because this is the question, remember, um, why, you know, why are you asking me for water? You know, I'm, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, uh, who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It, come, it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Interesting conversation, isn't it? Very interesting. You spoke the truth, Jesus said. I understand that. Let me share our third truth with you right now. Our third truth today is simply this. You need to, we need to learn to speak the truth without condemnation. We need to learn to speak truth into people's lives without condemning them. Now, there's no doubt about this woman was living an immoral lifestyle. And Jesus did not ignore it. He didn't just pretend like it wasn't there. But I also want you to know that, that, that um, he didn't contone it and encourage it either. He simply addressed it kind of with a, you know, just the facts kind of statement. For those of you who are a little older, you remember just the facts approach uh, to let her know that this is an area. See, now you oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Um, you know, this was an area that needed to be addressed, but that he wasn't going to dwell on it with her at that point. Um, you know, because, you know, this, is, this has to be dealt with, but not right that moment. There are 20 verses in this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. You know how many of them deal with this sin in her life? Three. Three out of 20. That's 15% of the conversation dealt with her sin. That was it. Just 15%. The rest of the conversation, Jesus is doing what? He's establishing a friendship with her. He is, he, he's telling her how to connect with God. He's telling her about himself. And when it came to the subject of sin, he only said as much as was needed to let the Holy Spirit then begin to convict her heart. Jesus didn't even need to be the Holy Spirit here because he wasn't the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And guess what? You're not the Holy Spirit either. I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still the Holy Spirit. 
And so he was content to let the Holy Spirit do what the only the Holy Spirit can do. And it's interesting that Jesus, who had every right to condemn people, didn't condemn them. He just didn't go around doing that. In fact, he said in John 3, 17, after, the, after he said, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to, into this world uh, to die for us. In verse 17, he goes on to say, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him not to condemn but to save the world and you know we we see this attitude expressed to the broken people who came to jesus for mercy and that has to be our attitude as well but sometimes it seems like we want just the opposite doesn't Sometimes, rather than wanting that to be our, our, our thought, we look at the world and we say, you know what? I want to fix this. I want to stay on this sin topic for a while in your life. And it seems like that we believe that when someone comes to church, all we ought to do is point out their sins and just continue to do that week after week after week after week. In fact, I've had people walk out of church sometimes who are long-term Christians, and they'll say, how come you didn't jump on my feet today about sin? How come you didn't tell us how bad a people we are? Because they're so used to hearing that. They come to church every Sunday just to have the preacher stand up in the pulpit and tell them how bad they are. And then say, God bless you, go home and come back next week, and I'll tell you how bad you are again. And they get so accustomed to that that it's not like going to church if they're not being told how bad they are. But that's not who Jesus was. That's not what he was doing. Because our purpose is not to condemn them. Our purpose is to help them find salvation. Our purpose is to point them to the one who can give them that salvation. It is to point them to Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be world changers, that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to be uncondemning, not ignoring the sin, but allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their lives and then point people to the Savior. In verses 19 and 20, it goes on to say, this is the woman speaking, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Now, a lot of people who are believers today think that this lady was trying to weasel out. She's trying to change the subject. Because we talk to people sometimes, don't we? We share good news, and, um, and you're doing a great job of, of getting that word out, and, um, and, and I applaud you for that. But sometimes people are going to want to change the topic, change the subject. They don't want to talk anymore about it. And, um, and that's, I don't think, what she's doing at all here. I think she's simply... Uh, trying to continue it she's actually she's actually taking the next step because i think she's saying in effect you know if i'm going to come back to god how do i do it if i'm going to follow him how am i going to accomplish that where am i going to have to go to do that where do i have to go to make an offering do i then need to go down to jerusalem and make an offering there at the temple or can i do it here on mount gerizim can i can i make an offering here to get right with God. Where do I go to do this? You Jews say go to Jerusalem. Samaritans say stay here in Ger and Mount Gerizim, and I'm kind of torn now. I want to get right with God, so how do I do that? 
And where do I go to do that? Now, I, I mentioned before that these religions were very different in many ways. Uh, and one of the things that they did, this is Samaritans, not only accepted only the first five books of, of the Old Testament of Scripture, in addition, they adjusted history somewhat to suit their own needs. You know, you, you hear about, um, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, change culture that's going on. Well, we change history. We change history books to make it suit somebody's particular need. And that's, that's kind of what, what, you know, a lot of us would want to do here in this case. Um, the, Jew, the Samaritans did that. They said, we don't want to go down to Jerusalem because they don't like us down there, so we'll just make our own place. And we'll just stay here. And we'll make this our place of worship. But they only did that in order to make that nearby mountain, Gerizim, which is the middle of their country, a holy place. And so the question really was, which religion is the true religion, Jesus? Which one do I follow? How did Jesus answer? Verses 21 through 24, he said, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether we worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him uh, for salvation comes from the Jews. And he's simply saying, and they don't know much about it either. So you don't know. They know everything. But no one's getting there through that religion. It's just not happening. And then he says this in verses 23 and 24, and 23 and 24 are your, your memory verses for this week. Um, but the time is coming, he said. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Why? Because God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now I can imagine I, I really can imagine that, that uh, how some of us might have answered that question, which is the true religion? How do I get there? We might have been tempted to say, well, first of all, ma'am, you've got to, you need to discuss some of the problems that I'm observing in the way you Samaritans interpret um, the, the books of Moses. So I tell you what, I'm going to do a detailed textual analysis that's going to reveal um, that your beloved Mount Gerizim is not even mentioned in the most reliable ancient manuscripts. It's not there. Gerizim is not there. It's not a holy place. This place we're standing, this place you want to worship is not holy at all. And furthermore, we need to discuss the veracity of the wisdom of the, uh, of, of the books of, of, the, of the prophets and, um, and, Mo, and, and, um, and the poetry of Psalms and Proverbs and, and those books. Because in order to worship in truth, you need to come to a right understanding of which books uh, are authoritative. Until you accept the Psalms and the prophets, then you're not going to be able to worship in spirit and truth. And thirdly, lady, don't think I'm at all finished with this deal about five husbands and not being married to the one you're living with now. We got a lot of talking to do about that. I know it's being a little facetious there, but, but I want you to understand that, 
that Jesus did not engage this woman in a biblical debate. He just refused to do that. He told her that she can connect with the living God, and that tells us something. Our world-changing um, uh, reality number three today is this. World changers always help others connect with the living God. That we help people connect with the living God, and that's our purpose. And that's what we're here to do. And if you want to make a difference in the world, number four is this. Winning souls must be more important than winning arguments. Winning souls has to take place over winning arguments. Sometimes we, we study the Bible just so we can win an argument with somebody at work or a neighbor across the street to tell them they're wrong and we're right and not caring about their soul at all. We need to win souls. Christian life isn't about merely agreeing with some intellectually um, you know, propositional statements is truth. And, and there are some propositional statements that we, that we, that we believe in and that we, that we end up accepting that who Jesus Christ is. He's the son of the living God who created everything and, and gave his life for us and he rose again from the dead. But the Christian life uh, is, is also has to be about giving God all that you have. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Loving him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. It has to be about saying, God, I am giving you everything about me, and I want you to be Lord of my life. And the Christian life is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So you say, well, Pastor Terrell, then what does it mean to worship God in truth? What does that mean, in truth? In, in verses 25 and 26, um, the woman's kind of saying the same thing. She said, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then notice what Jesus did. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. At this point, he's not telling anybody that. But he tells it to a Samaritan woman who's living with a guy, and she'd been married to five other guys before that. I am the Messiah. In the Gospel of John, a little later here in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the Messiah. But if you want to get to heaven, it's not going to be about whether you're right about Gerizim or Jericho, or Jerusalem. If you want to get to the Father, it's going to be, do you know me as your Savior, as the Messiah? Do we have a personal relationship? Do you have a relationship with the God of this universe that is personal and real? Truth doesn't always and only refer to those right statements. It also acknowledges the right the right relationship. World changer reality number four, truth, refers to having a personal relationship with the living truth, the Son of God. If one thing needed to happen there that afternoon, Jesus knew it was that she needed to have a relationship with the living God. And the where wasn't going to change it. And that brings us to the, to the final truth that I want you to see today. Number five, our mission is to help people connect with Jesus. 
It is always to help people connect with Jesus. There are some who think that, that we will change the world through the political process. And it just never works. It just doesn't happen. Because that's not where our hope lies. And, and if and we try to put our hope there, then we're going to be disappointed every time. I remember one time watching a well-known TV preacher several years ago, and, and his sermon was called, How to Bring America Back to God. And point one was vote. And point two was write your representatives. That was his gospel message that day. Vote and write your representatives. Nothing wrong with, I, you do both of those things, that's great. But if you want to change the world, you're going to be disappointed. I don't care what it is you want to change, and I don't care who's in power, whether it's you or the other guys, or some combination of something else, you will always lose. Because that will never change the world. Hasn't changed the world since time began. It's not going to change the world till Jesus comes. And so there's got to be another answer there if I want to change the world. There's, there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's, those are not where power comes from, and that's not where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus and him alone. So if you want to change the world, you better be thinking about him. You better point your life toward him and connect your life with him, and you better point others toward him and help them connect their lives to him as well. See, I want my life, and I want your life, and I want our church's life to be about Jesus. How do we grow in our relationship to Jesus? How do we help other people encounter him and come to have a relationship with Jesus? Because he is the only answer. That's why our new mission statement starting this year is what? And I'm going to let you try to fill in the blanks here for just a moment. Our mission statement is helping people do what? Find life and hope by what? Connecting with God's love. Helping people find life and hope by connecting with God's love. That's exactly what Jesus did that afternoon. No more and no less. He said, woman, if you really knew who I was and what I'm offering you, you would want him. She said, that's what I want then. And she connected him with God's love. Now, don't put your sermon notes. I know you can close your Bible and put your sermon notes away right now. And you're going to get 10 merits if you do. Because we're not through with it. I want to share, just going to read a couple of the, the, these end verses. And I want to share three very quick thoughts with you as we do that. Starting in verse 27, this is what we read. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Of course they were. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left the water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging, urging Jesus to eat something. And we just walked all the way to McDonald's and back. We brought you a happy meal. Eat it. 
He said, I don't like the toy. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> but Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Verses 33 and 34, they say, did someone bring him food while we were gone? If we going to do that, maybe Uber delivered it, and I, you know, or Grubhub or something. If we'd known, we wouldn't have made that rock. The disciples ask each other, and then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Jesus said that because there's nothing more fulfilling in life than doing God's will. There just isn't. There's nothing you can find that is going to be more fulfilling to you. After the woman left him and had gone into town, I can imagine Jesus basking in the joy of what had just taken place. And, and, and when the story began, he was tired from the journey and he was hungry. So he sent his disciples for food. And now that it's at the end of this conversation, he's revived and he's rejuvenated. And we don't know if he ever even had a drink of the water. Never says he took a drink of the water. Never says he ate any of the food that they brought back. But all of a sudden, he is on fire again, ready to go. He was, he was God, but he was 100% man as well. And he got tired, and he got hungry. And now he's been revived, not from eating and drinking water, but from doing God's will. So let me share one thought with you. There's nothing more satisfying than being used by God. The most exciting thing about being able to help change the world is you're being used by God. And you will never do anything that will satisfy your soul and your body more than that. And you will clamor for it as you begin to do that. And many of you know that. You've experienced that. But it's not just for the spiritual elite. It's for all of us to be a part of that work. And secondly, I want you to see that when you make yourself available to be used by God, what happens? A new world of opportunities open up to you. All of a sudden, there's all these new opportunities that you didn't know were going to be there. Jesus has this chance encounter with one woman. And he sees her life changed. But all of a sudden, there's a whole village of Sychar. And probably people from all around the region whose lives are going to be changed as well. Verse 35 says, You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. You know, unfortunately, some Christians and even some churches believe that we are already um, live in a world of shrinking opportunities. After all, guy, we just went through this whole year of covid so surely, there's no opportunities to reach people for Jesus Christ. But that's not true. It is not a shrinking opportunity. Our attitude can't be, we've built the building, we've put a sign out front, we've opened the door, now let them come. Our mindset, our attitude has to be, we need to go to where they are and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ and not wait for them to come. The last verses in this section, verses 36 through 41, say this. 
The harvesters are paid good wages, Jesus said, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans in the village believed in Jesus because the woman said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days. So much for a two-hour lunch. He stayed two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Just long enough to have lunch, guys, and then we're going to go on. And then there's this one encounter that leads to two days, long enough for many to believe. Starts with a single conversation. Becomes the most important event in that lady's life that leads to the most important event in many, many, many people's lives in that area of Samaria. Third thing I want you to notice is this, that when you let God use you, he multiplies your efforts. Jesus just shared with one lady, and God multiplied those efforts. And he does that in your life as well. Um, so when those opportunities come, they will, if you take advantage of them, they never stop coming your way. Your efforts are blessed, they are multiplied, and then they're blessed again. And the people you help start helping others. That's God's plan, and that's what we need to do. So remember, when, uh, remember that this happens one life at a time. One life at a time. Our purpose statement is to advance the kingdom of God one heart at a time. But when we do that, God is going to multiply our efforts in tremendous ways. So it happens one life at a time, one day at a time, and one simple conversation at a time. God bless you as you change the world this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who gives everything to us that we need, who blesses us in ways that we can't even imagine, who uses our obedience to follow Jesus wherever and whenever he leads to do his work. Father, we pray that whoever is here in this room, whoever is listening online, if they have never said, I want to be used by you, Jesus, I pray that they would be willing to do that. For those who have never trusted you as Savior, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And Father, we'll give you glory and praise for what only you can do. Because what happened that day was a God-sized event. It was nothing that, that Jesus or any of his disciples had planned on. It could make happen. But Jesus seized on that opportunity to touch one lady's life who needed a relationship with you. Father, who are those people that, that we can seize on those opportunities when they come that just need that relationship with you? Help us to be that one who will share, who will not let the moment pass by. Thank you for the salvation that you give in Jesus Christ, for the life-changing power it has, for the hope that it gives. We pray these things in Jesus' most precious name.
Amen.